When it comes to publishing books, if that is your goal, often it pays to, to go slow, to go fast. Thrive friends, this is your host, Dr. Solomon. How can we plan long-term in a short-term world? Today, I'm joined by a dear friend, a mentor, and a special guest, Dory Clark, the author of The Long Game. She's a familiar face on Thrive, as a brief intro, Dory was a presidential campaign spokesperson and has been consistently selected as one of the top 50 business thinkers globally. She's the author of six books, including The Entrepreneurial You and Stand Out and a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review. Dory Clark, welcome again on Thrive. I am so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your patience first time. Remember, we had... <laughs> <laughs> can see the big smile in your face. <laughs> you were learning. You were doing great. For those who don't know the story, uh, Dory was graciously my first guest on Thrive. And at the time, I didn't know how to record the video. And believe it or not, after recording the full episode, the episode was not recorded. And thankfully, she had the recorder on for the audio and we made it as a podcast. And that was seven months ago, I believe, Dory. You have come a million miles. It's amazing <laughs> to see. Thank you. Thank you, Dory. Congratulations on your new book, The Long Game. Thank you. I am, I'm excited about it for sure. What gap does the book fill in the personal and entrepreneurial library, Dory? Well, the way that I think about The Long Game is... I have spent a lot of time thinking about strategy and that often plays out in the corporate world. Everybody's interested in business strategy, corporate strategy. Uh, I did a strategic thinking course for LinkedIn Learning that is actually my most popular course I've done for them. Over a million people have taken it. So there's, there's a lot of interest in how to be a strategic thinker, but I, I really wanted to take that concept, to take the principles that one would use to apply to your business and to figure out how you could apply them to your life in order to actually be more thoughtful about making the right choices, making conscious choices so that you have a better chance of ending up where you want to go. And could you elaborate what you mean by long game, long, the short-term world and the long-term strategic thinking? So often, I think many of us can relate to this, it really seems like there are so many pressures toward the short term in our day-to-day -day life. In a business context, it might be a corporate executive that keeps getting hammered to increase quarterly profits, which is nice in the short term, but it might lead to that person making choices that are not good for the company in the long term. And it's kind of similar with our own lives. We are so barraged with social media, with comparison, with looking at other people. And it often seems like, oh, you know, everybody else has it figured out. Everybody else is able to be successful more quickly. Oh, well, why, you know, why doesn't my podcast have 10 million downloads by now or, or whatever the metric is? And so it sometimes pushes people toward bad choices or at least the wrong choices for them. Because so often what is really meaningful are the kinds of things that you often have to toil at for a long time without, you know, it's not, it's not even just without glory. It's without any sense of whether it's working or not, which is incredibly 
frightening for smart and high achieving people that want that feedback about, oh yeah, you're doing the right thing. Oh yeah, you'll get there. Often the best things and the most meaningful things, there is absolutely no external reassurance whatsoever, which is extraordinarily discomforting because no one wants to waste their time. Nobody wants to make a mistake or you know ruin their life by doing the wrong thing. And it requires a huge amount of perseverance and patience to get to the other side of, uh, of that road, of that chasm sometimes. But when you do, it is extraordinarily powerful because that is when you can accomplish great things, things that are truly meaningful in the end. And so I wanted to write a book to help people understand that process, to think it through, and to really find out what it would look like for them if they were able to live their lives as long-term thinkers, unafraid to make the choices that might seem hard or frustrating or unproductive in the moment, but can be transformative if you look at it from the right lens. Your book is divided into three big sections. Could you elaborate on the three sections? Yeah, absolutely. So the first section of the book is actually, I call it uh, white space, because one of the biggest reasons we hear for why people are not doing long-term thinking or not making the kind of long-term choices is that, you know, oh, well, I'm just too busy. I have, I have too many meetings, too many commitments, too many obligations, so I don't have the time or the space to be able to even think about the long-term because it's all I can do to take a breath and keep up with my obligations. That is incredibly common, and I, I, can, I can definitely relate to it for sure. I think we all can. But if we are going to be able to really reformat how we live our lives, we have to do something to stop it. And, and the good news is there are things that we can do. They're not necessarily easy. It involves making unpopular choices, hard choices, but we have to clear the decks to give ourselves enough space to be able to breathe. Otherwise, none of the rest is possible. So that's number one. Number two is about really understanding where you want to focus your attention. If we actually do succeed in creating enough white space so that we can be, you know, th think, thinking our thoughts and deciding where we want to go in the long, long term, it then becomes a question of, okay, there's a lot of things we could do. What do we want to do? How do we make the choices that are right for us? How do we kind of tamp down all of the voices, all of the critics, all of the, you really ought to do this, and instead hear our inner voice about what we want to do and make the choices to optimize for that. And then the final section, keeping the faith. The reason that I did that is that ultimately, um, it, it kind of is about keeping the faith because so often in the process of becoming a long-term thinker, there are setbacks, there's rejection, there's failures, or at least there's perceived failures, right? Because it's, yes. I mean, we know intellectually that it is uncommon for a person to come up with a life plan and then every single thing works. Like that would be nice if life was like that, but that is usually not how life works. But nonetheless, when we experience it personally, so often we are um, really knocked down by it. You know, it, it can be extraordinarily demoralizing. And so many people, so many promising people, talented people end up quitting or, or just, you know, not pursuing things because they feel like, oh, well, you know, okay, the universe is telling me. No, the universe is not telling you anything. You know, if a hundred people people reject you or say no, okay, fine. But so often, instead, you you talk to people and they say, oh, well, you know, yeah, one, per one person turned me down, one school turned me down, three schools turned me down. That is a rounding error. And we have to find a way to keep going through it. And it involves 
a lot of personal courage to be able to do that. And so I lay out strategies that people can use to be able to actually muscle through that process when we need to, because that that's the hardest part. That's where almost everybody drops out. But if you can get through it, it actually gives you a massive competitive advantage. And I know you're talking from experience, Dory. You walked the walk. You were not born Dory Clark that we know now. You had your setback, especially after you get laid off from your work and then going through your marketing career. How was this journey for you in terms of the white space and keeping the faith? Yeah, thank you. And, you know, you're referring to an experience that I had very early in my career. I mean, literally my first job I was laid off from as a reporter. But one of the things that I actually talk about in uh, one of the later chapters of the long game is just more more recent failures, mm -hmm. I guess you could say, because um, sometimes when when you're successful in certain areas, yes. I think it's it's often easy for people to to sort of say, oh, but you know, you, you don't know, oh, you you know, now you're all set or whatever. But the the truth is, um, in 2019, so the year the year before the pandemic, I think you know the pandemic was weird for everybody. But in 2019, which was in general a relatively normal year, I set five goals for myself. And they were all things that, you know, they were stretch goals, but they were they were plausible stretch goals. So it was writing a book with a sort of celebrated co-author. It was uh, landing a newspaper column at a very famous newspaper. It was, um, you know, uh, creating a musical that was based, you know, getting the rights to create a musical that was based on my favorite movie, you know, like all, all of these things. Oh, uh, landing a, a certain speaking engagement that was kind of high profile and then making it on the Thinkers 50 list of top thinkers. And anyway, since you introduced me this way, yay, the, the good news is that I, I, the latter one, making it onto the Thinkers 50 list of the top 50 business thinkers, that happened. That was great. All four of the other goals completely failed. Like I was like my five goals for 2019 and 80% of them did not work out. And, you know, this is at a relatively, you know, far along part in my career where, you know, I've been working, you know, 20 plus years. Uh, so I have a lot of experience under my belt. So I think it's, it's really important for everybody to recognize that we have to keep pushing ourselves. We are not pushing ourselves far enough if we, you know, if we have 100% success rate. And we also have to realize that even if you have an 80% failure rate, as long as your goals are good enough goals, just getting that 20% uh, to, to work, that's fantastic. That's enough. But, you know, it takes it takes a lot of resolve to just sort of be like, essentially, you know, punched in the face four out of five times and be like, okay, okay, I you know, I get, I'll, I'll get back up. Uh, so it, so it's terrible, but, uh, but it happens to all of us, myself included. And so I, I really wanted to just walk people through that process of, of understanding that these setbacks are not, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not just us. It's never just us. We all are constantly getting rejected for things and, and cannot, we cannot afford to accept other people's judgment as definitive about us. Thank you for sharing this, Dory. I know it means a lot to many people who not only starting, but in mid-career and they think, okay, now I have made it to this level. I'm now, quote, entitled to certain level of goal achievement or recognition. And then when this doesn't happen, then they doubt the whole career. Maybe I'm not good enough. A lot of people worry. And uh, I, I think that 
One of the things that's the saddest to me is just the extent to which so many people let themselves be swayed by other people's um, opinions, you know, by external opinions. It is extremely important to recognize that most people literally have no idea what they're doing. They are just making things up. And they, may not, they might not be aware <laughs> that they don't know what they're doing. But I mean, you know, I think about people, you know, who rejected me years ago for doctoral programs that I applied for. I mean, you know, I think they they thought, you know, oh, you know, we're, yeah, we're, we're making the best decision. We're making the right decision. I'm, a, you know, I'm glad now that I didn't end up doing that because I think I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it nearly as much as I thought I would have thought, but I would have been just fine. I would have been a great graduate student. You know, I, I, I know that, um, they didn't think so. And I think if I had sort of taken on that mantle of their, of their rejection, oh, they think I'm not smart enough. They think I'm not good enough. I mean, it's ridiculous to let other people who probably look at your resume for 10 seconds somehow render a judgment on you. I mean, it's bonkers, and yet so many people do it. And I really want the world to fight back against that. I want I want us to be really, really skeptical anytime someone tells us we're not good enough. Uh, because, you know, um, I, <laughs> I just would want i would want them to prove it <laughs> i would want a hundred of them to have to say that because otherwise i i don't think their judgment is worth trusting i think our judgment internally is worth trusting and we need to keep going forward before we move to the next part of this wonderful conversation with dory i'd like to ask the audience watching us to check her social media dory clark one word instagram linkedin facebook it's all simple one word dory clark don't forget to check her website where she has links to all her articles, including the ones in Harvard Business Review. She recently started a wonderful course in the Business Development Academy of Coaches with our common friend, Alyssa Cohn, where you will learn about strategies to grow your coaching business even during uncertain times. I highly recommend it. This is a marvelous opportunity, especially now when we are going into the post-pandemic era, whatever that is, and there, there will be more opportunities to grow coaching business. I remember Dory talking with you about the book when it was in the making, I believe it was September 2020. And in less than six months, the manuscript transformed into not a book, no, no, into a full publication on Amazon. Could you share the process that you followed to get from ideas to a publication in less than six months? And of course, the ideation process uh, took longer than that. I, I started hashing out ideas for the book. Um, it wasn't quite in the right form, and I had to come up with um, a lot of variations to, to ultimately land on the concepts in the long game. But I started that process of, of kind of uh, strategizing with my agent in July of 2019. Mm -hmm. And I did a number of drafts, you know, kind of... Uh, rough sketches for her and ultimately we got the book proposal finalized around december of 2019 and she sent it out in january and ultimately it got accepted uh by harvard business review press in late um it, it was like late february it was actually um march 1st i write about this in the book um march 1st was the day that I got the note from HBR saying, oh yes, we want to publish this. 
March 1st was also the very first day that a COVID uh, you know, positive result was found in New York City. So almost at exactly the same time the book was greenlit, the world just started caving in. And so starting to think about the book, starting to write the book in the midst of the pandemic was kind of crazy. Uh, so I didn't really focus on it for a few months as things were shaking out and we were just seeing what, what was happening. But I, I gave myself um, a few months over uh, over the course of the summer and I decided it would be my COVID summer project to write a first draft of the book. And so, as you say, I finished it just, uh, just at the end of August, early September of 2020. And that, that was the first draft. And yeah, we're, um, it is going to be published September 21st of uh, 2021. We usually don't have time to think strategically. We are tied in the minute to minute life. And I um, attended your LinkedIn course about uh, strategic thinking. And I remember you saying something on the lines that 96% of CEOs or C-suite people don't have the time to think strategically. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's actually a, cr a crazy pair of statistics that I came across in the, in the course of researching strategy and strategic thinking in the workplace. Um, so so there's one strategy, or, or sorry, there's one survey that was done a few years ago that said that 97% of top company leaders said that strategic thinking, yes, was very important, critically important. 97% agreed, which is like, you know, when was the last time 97% of anybody agreed about anything? So it's like, okay, yes, we can accept uh, that this is very important. And then in a separate study, they said, oh, okay, leaders, well, do you have time for strategic thinking? And 96% said no, they didn't, which yeah. is crazy. I mean, if if this is one of, if not the most important function of a leader in an organization, so something is going on, something is going haywire, and I really wanted to dive into researching the book so that I could understand part of, of what that was and uh, begin to, to scrape it away so we could make better choices for ourselves. This is so inspiring for many who always want to write a book, but there is always something urgent on their plate. And this idea never had a chance to materialize. And this include many of the high achievers who are always on the go. There is always something important. What would you advise people to do in the following four scenarios? So these are people who are high achievers. They have a lot of urgent things and they will tell you the following statements. Are you ready? I'm ready. Terrific. The first one. So I have ideas written down about the topic, but they cover so many grounds. I don't know how to choose an angle that's worth publishing. Oh, this is good. Well, you know, I, I think one of the most important things, if I have been there, right? I wanted to write a book for such a long time. And it was just sort of a, a goal, maybe even a childhood goal, you could say, of mine. And so I remember probably... 14 years ago, um, starting to try to, you know, mess around with things, write proposals, get introductions to agents. And the agents were just not <laughs> very impressed with my ideas, uh, which was kind of depressing at the time. But what I came to understand, and I mean, I realized it retrospectively, is that my my thesis was not sharp enough. I was just like, oh, I should do something about storytelling. Well, okay, you know, what is that? <laughs> you no. know, like that's pretty broad. Um, so the most important thing that, that you can do if your ideas are too broad, 
and we're talking specifically about nonfiction books, is there is a section that you need to have in a book proposal called competing works. And sometimes people complete it as a pro forma exercise, but it actually is really quite important, which is you need to come up with, let's say three to five books that are like your book, but your book will be different. And you need to be able to consciously articulate, you know, mine is is like this, but but X, you know, mine, my book um, talks about how to have difficult conversations at work, but it's not like crucial conversations because mm -hmm. I talk instead about how to do it just from the perspective of if you're a junior employee, let's mm -hmm. say, you know, or, what, or whatever, but it's like, what's your hook? What's, it forces you to identify what is the market need that is not being met. And if you can do that, and if it sounds compelling enough, that really gets you pretty far along in terms of being able to successfully pitch your book. Because I type slowly, I dictate my thoughts. My dictated ideas feel like a stream of consciousness rather than coherently written piece. I don't know how to think through dictations the same way I think through writing. Yeah, well, I, I think pretty much everyone's dictation is sort of stream of consciousness. I mean, yeah. almost nobody writes the way they speak or vice versa. I mean, you, you want them to be, you want your writing to be as spoken as possible so that it doesn't sound stilted. But in regular speech, if it's literally transcribed, the amount of ums and ahs and gunnas and just colloquial pauses and half-finished thoughts is going to appall everyone. It's, it's going to be terrible. And so uh, you would never literally want to have a, a transcript be something that gets published because for every person, even the smartest, even the most articulate, it's going to look terrible. So I would say uh, dictate all you want, you know, use use a transcription service or an AI transcription service, and then just use it as an outline. You know, you use it as uh, a way of getting as close as possible to refining things. But it, it needs to be a two-tiered process. Talk out your thoughts and then clean them up mm -hmm. and how they can get around that typing slowly is that even a concern or that's something that from your experience you didn't find it a big concern well i mean you know like how slowly <laughs> slowly yeah. like it's let's make I, up a number i would say 30 <laughs> words per minute is that i know is that low that is i don't know i i i, th I think that that honestly slow typing should be the least of anybody's worries it's it ne you need to be worried about uh, sharp ideas. And mm -hmm. if it's really awful, you can take a typing class, which my parents actually made me do when I was a kid, which really has come in handy. Um, but it, even, even if you're hunting and pecking, what matters is the cogency of your argument and the clarity of your ideas. And if you've got that, I mean, whatever, even if it takes you an extra month because you're a slow typer, in the scheme of things, it's worth it. Absolutely. Person number three. So they are more advanced in the process. I have a rough draft, but I don't know how to give it a unique spin that will make the book have a chance to get good sales. Yes. So I would say, perhaps unfortunately for this person, if you're still trying to figure out how to give it a unique spin and you already have a rough draft, that might be a bad sign because it means you've written 250 pages and it's kind of like, meh. Um, ideally, you want to have the unique spin before you start writing, which is why 
um, when it comes to nonfiction books as compared to fiction, where the deal in fiction is like, how sparkling is your prose and is it beautiful to read? You know, in nonfiction, nobody really cares <laughs> exactly. Like, is you know, it's like, is your prose good enough? Okay, mm -hmm. check, great. Um, but what matters is the quality of your ideas. And so you don't write the whole book. Uh, if you are looking for a commercial publisher, what you do is you write a proposal, most of which is a marketing plan. Essentially, it's like an out a detailed outline and a marketing plan. And that's maybe 30 pages. And then you write a sample chapter, which let's call that 20 to 30 pages. So you can save yourself a lot of effort by getting, you know, the hard work is the thinking, it's not the writing. Um, so understanding what your angle is and what your point of differentiation is, that sort of needs to be done upstream, I would say. Mm -hmm. To measure twice and cut once. Yes. Yes. The last person is more advanced than the other three. I want to write my second or even third or fourth book, but I'm trapped in the public image of my first book. How can I branch out while maintaining my personal brand? Oh, this is such a good question. Um, well, certainly musicians have this all the time, right? It's like, it's, you know, there's kind of the pressure. Well, it has to be different enough so you're not repeating yourself. But, um, you know, if you've been doing pop music and all of a sudden you do a country album, everyone's going to be like, what is this? You know, exactly. this isn't what I expected. Um, so I think that ideally what what you want to do. I mean, of course, right? You you want to follow your heart. And if something's really important to you, then you do it. Um, but if you are thinking specifically, how can I thread the needle between something I'm interested in and something that will be commercially successful or that, that won't upset my fan base, uh, then ultimately you want to be thinking in terms of a Venn diagram. You want to be thinking about, you know, these overlapping circles. How do you make it different, but still have some of the same DNA. So for me, my favorite way of doing this is actually that that in almost all cases, the books that I have written have actually arisen organically from the seeds of the previous one. Mm -hmm. So it's sometimes um, been a question of like, well, what what is the question that seems to me like the next logical question in the sequence? So my first book was Reinventing You. Mm -hmm. And as I was traveling around and giving talks about reinvention, something that kept cropping up in my mind is like, okay, let's say you've reinvented yourself. Yay, fantastic. Well, then what? How, if you're in a new industry, you've landed the job or whatever it is, how do you then establish yourself as an expert in that industry? What does that take? And that's why I wrote my book, Stand Out. And then the sort of DNA that connected it to the next one, uh, Entrepreneurial You, is I was realizing as I was talking to people, meeting people, um, you know, even having experiences in my own career, I realized, oh, you know, it's actually not uncommon for people to have built up a lot of reputation, a lot of expertise in their field, but not necessarily know how to monetize that. They mm -hmm. might be respected, but they don't know how to make a living out of respect. And so how do you make money out of respect? And so I wrote Entrepreneurial You to really help people think through how to take whatever credibility they had amassed and turn it into dollars through creating multiple revenue streams in their business. People watching us, if you haven't already read that book, The Entrepreneurial You, I really, really recommend it. I, I really mean it, especially in the gig economy we are living in now. Everyone, including physicians, trust me, they're not, the jobs are not stable in healthcare, as you guys might imagine. Have a gig on the side. And Dory shows practical examples, not just theoretical ones, how to monetize and how to generate side income sources in case one is blown up 
you still can survive on two or three more. And I would really recommend it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Dory, what would be final words of wisdom from ideas to publishing in less than six months? Oh, my goodness. Well, when it comes to actually being able to write your book and share your ideas, one of the pieces of advice that I will share, which was very annoying to me, frankly, uh, when, I, when I first realized it, but I hope will be helpful to others, is to a certain extent, and this this is kind of all about uh, circling back, you know, playing playing the long game. Yes. When it comes to publishing books, if that is your goal, often it pays to to go slow to go fast. And what I mean by that is that early on, I just wanted to write a book. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to get that book out there. Um, yes. But what I came to realize is that unfortunately, um, my path was a little bit blocked because the publishers kept being like, blah, blah, we're not interested, you know, speaking of of gatekeepers, uh, because they, they wanted me to be more famous before I wrote a book. And it seemed so frustrating. It seemed like just such a such a loop of like, well, how am yep. I going to get famous if I don't have a book? Um, the catch 22. Very much so. Um, but something that I did start doing kind of because I had to, but you are doing this right now with this um, podcast and video series, Mohammed, and I think a lot of people can learn from it, is it is really useful. The best way, if you want to be a long-form content creator in terms of coming up with books, one of the best things you can do is to become a shorter form content creator by starting a podcast, starting a video show, writing articles, giving speeches, any of these things, because it builds your brand and it builds your platform and it really uh, starts to get your name out there in a way such that a publisher will look favorably on it and say, oh, well, you know, this guy or this girl has a lot of people paying attention already who would be eager to buy a book. And so therefore we will take a chance. Thank you for sharing this. And what a pleasure to have you on Thrive, Dory. I appreciate it so much. It's so wonderful to be here. And I'll just mention quickly that uh, given your kind uh, testimonial for Entrepreneurial You, that if folks want to actually think through for their own business how they can create multiple revenue streams and get a little bit more financial security, uh, you know, whether you work for a company and have a day job or if you're an entrepreneur, um, I have a free resource, which is the 88-question Entrepreneurial You self-assessment. And folks can get it for free at doryclark.com entrepreneur. Don't forget, guys, to check the, the Business Academy for Coaches, Dory and Alyssa Cohn, two of the best business coaches who really know how to get clients, will teach you how to do this. They walk the walk before us, and they have seen these strategies working in real life. Thank you, Dory. And until we meet next time, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive. Thank you.